When I was in my college years, there was one aspect of that season of my life that I am not very proud of. And it took years for me to experience uh, the conviction of God about a particular sin pattern that I have excused and did not think much of. And that was the pattern of speeding. I was a fast driver and disregarded often uh, the speeding limits. And I cannot tell you how many, I lost count of how many tickets I have paid. And often in that season, the way I explained that, what now I would call a sin pattern, which I did not call back then, I was, well, these are just human-made laws. I mean, in Germany, you can drive the car on the Autobahn and have no limits. I mean, what would driving be like in America if we live like folks in Germany? It can be done. So I had all kinds of excuses of why this was not an issue. I just needed to get to youth group quicker, get to church in time. It was all for good reasons. And yet, one of the ongoing disputes between my parents and I in my college years was my ongoing payments of tickets. You got a ticket again? And I thought, what would life be like if there were no laws for speeding? To live under grace. Life would have been better with that kind of grace. Well, I think some of us are approaching God's law and His grace with a similar mentality. Wouldn't life be better if we were no longer under God's laws? If we didn't have to conform our lives to His laws? If we just focused on, on the freedom that we get to live life the way we think it would be best. This morning, we're going to look at life under grace. Romans chapter 6, we'll be reading from verse 15 to chapter 7, verse 6. Romans chapter 6, 15 to 7, 6. As you turn there, we are continuing our journey to the book of Romans. And particularly, we're continuing a section in Romans where Paul addresses the need that we have to break away from sin and how do we do that? Let's hear God's word this morning. Paul says, what then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have become set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts as we hear. Father, you have given us your word, and you have also sent the Holy Spirit to dwell among us, to live in us. We pray that by your Spirit you would use this word to bring freedom to those who are still captive in their sin, to bring freedom to those who are still captive to the bondage of the law. Father, we pray that by your Spirit Christ would be exalted in the act of proclaiming this word. I pray for your assistance as I preach this word, and I pray for your assistance as we all hear it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, we looked at why fight sin. Why should Christians fight sin? Paul's answer was because we died to sin. We were united to Jesus in his death and united to Jesus in his resurrection. And Paul used the language and the image of being baptized into Jesus, into his death, and baptized with him uh, in the new life, the resurrection. 
we no longer live to ourselves, and we no longer live by ourselves. We live to Jesus, and we live for Jesus. And Paul finished that argument last week with a statement that could be easily misapplied. He said in verse 14 of chapter 6, just the verse before the passage we read, he said, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. If we flip that statement around, Paul would say, Since you are not under law, but under grace, sin will have no dominion over you. In other words, under grace, the dominion of sin is broken over us. Not only, only, not only since penalty is paid for, but also since power is broken. But as good as that sounds, as good as the promise of sin having no more dominion over us, as good as that sounds, for the Jewish audience in Paul's, uh, in the church of Rome to which Paul is writing, this phrase of, you are not under law but under grace, that just sounds, that just sounds dangerous. What do you mean that we are no longer under law but under grace? Is it like Samuel, the college student, assuming driving around in a land where there's no more laws of driving? I mean, that just opens up the door to, to reckless driving. To be under law, to be no longer under law? Well, you can imagine what's going on in, in the life of a, of a Jewish person who's hearing this word. Wouldn't that kind of life open up the door and the gate to more sinning? After all, if there's no law, is there transgression? So you can understand how this phrase, we are no longer under law but under grace, could be misapplied, taken out of context, and misused. And Paul saw this objection coming. That's why he's addressing it in our text. In verse 15, he continues the statement from verse 14, and he continues in verse 15, and he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? We can understand this objection. If there's no more boundaries, then there's no more crossing of the boundaries. And this is how some people continue to think of today. Uh, even when people characterize churches those who visit churches and are checking out churches and trying to figure out which church God is calling them to belong to and be a part of, uh, some people evaluate churches based on, well, there's just a, just a more grace-preaching church. Uh, this other church is more God's commands kind of church, as if God's commands and God's grace are opposites. This is a more grace-preaching church. Today, uh, we hear this dichotomy, either commands or grace. But Paul wants to show us from the word how such a dichotomy 
is often misunderstood. So when Paul says, are we to sin because we're no longer under law but under grace, Paul's answer is, by no means, or absolutely not. And the question is, why not? I mean, seriously, if, if there's no more commands that stand over us, why not continue to sin? Our passage will give us the reasons why. And there's two reasons but these reasons could be combined together and, and stand under the umbrella, grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. And the two reasons why grace changes everything are actually two images, two metaphors that Paul is using to describe the life of the Christian or what's going on in the heart of a Christian to show us why we cannot continue to live under, in sin when we are under grace. What are the two reasons? Grace changes your master. Grace changes your master. And second, Grace changes who be, you belong to. Grace changes who you belong to. That's why grace changes everything. We'll see from this passage these two images. The first image is in verses 15 through 23. The second image is in chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. Let's look at each of these reasons. Grace changes your master. Paul introduces a principle for helping us identify our master accurately. He uses an image that was common in the ancient world, uh, the image of servants who present themselves to their masters as obedient servants, as obedient slaves. Paul says in verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, the point of the illustration is to help us identify whom are we serving. In the case of obedient servants, uh, whoever they obey shows that those are the masters. Uh, Paul is using this imagery to drive home a lesson for our spiritual lives. For the choice between sin and righteousness. You can say all you want that God is your Lord or your master. Or that you are under grace. But whom you obey is a better indicator whom you are truly serving. The principle is simple. Your obedience reveals your true master. Your obedience reveals what kind of dominion is over you. But there's an intriguing contrast here of, of the masters that Paul sets before us in this, con in this imagery. Paul says in verse 16 that one can be a slave either of sin or of obedience. In this passage, sin and obedience are presented as masters. 
Now, why is Paul saying that the opposite of sin is obedience? I love how a New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner put it beautifully, presumably because Paul wanted to emphasize that life under grace is characterized by obedience. And this blows our minds. <laughs> Friends, have you considered that life under grace is characterized by obedience to God's word? In the next two verses, we find out why Paul contrasts sin with obedience as two opposite or different masters. Paul says, because God's grace produces a new obedience in our hearts. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul begins and says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, do you see the change grace causes in our hearts? It's a change from being slaves of sin to being slaves of righteousness. But that happens when a change takes place in the heart. Grace causes obedience to God's word to spring up within our hearts. And that change of heart, the change of obedience from uh, an obedience from the heart or at the level of the heart, an obedience to God's word, changes us from becoming or being slaves of sin to being slaves of righteousness. And notice the verb tenses. They're all in the past. In other words, this change of masters, this, the work that God's grace has done in our hearts to bring about this obedience that causes a change of masters has already taken place for those who are Christians. And notice who gets the credit for this change. Paul is, in, is not saying thanks to the believer. Thanks to the choice the believer has made. No, he introduces this change with thanks be to God. Even the work of obedience in our hearts is credited to God. Again, Tom Schreiner says beautifully, Indeed, God must be the one who causes obedience to rise in human hearts because all human beings are slaves of sin. Friends, even in the Old Testament, God promised to make a new covenant with his people. And passages like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 describe the promise of the new covenant. When you get home this afternoon, read Jeremiah 31 and read Ezekiel 36. But even there, in those passages, God uh, promised that he will bring about a new covenant with his people where he will pour out his spirit on his people, change their hearts, and cause them to obey his statutes. So now Paul is giving thanks to God that he has accomplished this change of heart which God promised to do 
even in the Old Testament, producing a new obedience in the believers and thus changing who they serve. No longer sin, but righteousness. This is what it means to live under grace. Life under grace is characterized by obedience to the Word of God and obedience that comes from the heart. And this heart obedience has already started in those who have become Christians. Well, friends, this is why becoming a Christian or uh, the doctrine of conversion is not merely a human decision, but involves the work of God's grace to work in our hearts to cause obedience to spring up in our hearts. And the first visible signs of that obedience, of that new obedience, is repentance and trust in Jesus. But notice the ongoing responsibility of that past action to continue on in the present. There's a, a present ongoing responsibility that Paul gives to the, uh, the believers in verse 19. He says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So what is life under grace like? Not only is it a life in which we have experienced a change of heart, producing obedience in us, therefore a change of masters in the past, but it's an ongoing life in which we now present our members, our body as members or as slaves of this new master called righteousness. Paul calls Christians to continue to see themselves as slaves of the new master of righteousness. Now Paul says in verse 16 that He's speaking this way because of the natural limitations that his audience has. We, we don't fully grasp the amazing work of God's grace in our hearts. We're tempted to fall back into obeying the impulses of impurity, of lawlessness. So we need to be reminded daily uh, to give our bodies, the members of our bodies, to the service of the new master. Friend, if you are a Christian, here's the great news of the gospel. You have been freed from the old master of sin. This is great news. You have been freed. Therefore, continue to live your life serving the new master of righteousness. This freedom that has been given to you, you did not work for. It's been granted to you. So therefore, live in the new freedom of the new master. Oh, friends, just as serving sin leads to more sin, and we all know what that means, don't we? When I was serving the master of lawlessness in my driving, I continued to break the law. I continued to live in lawlessness and I had to pay for it. Because when you are living life under the master of lawlessness, of sin, it will only lead to more sinning. 
But when we live our lives as as servants, as slaves of righteousness, of this new obedience that God has worked in our hearts, the result of that, the fruit of that is sanctification. Living our lives more and more set apart for the purposes of God. Friends, who are you serving? Who is your master? You know your master based on who you are obeying. Whoever you are obeying, that is your master. And you also know your master based on the fruits of your life. Because whoever you are bound to will produce the more of those kind of fruits. If sin, if you see sin increasing in you, it is possible that you're still serving the old master of sin even though you put yourself and think that you are living under grace. Verse 20 to 23, the last part of this first image, Paul is telling us why being slaves of righteousness is totally worth it. Why, if you had to choose between the two masters, uh, we should seriously consider what these masters produce in us and what these masters reward us with. Why one master is way more worth it than the other. So let's look at the way Paul presents these masters. In verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. And this is the amazing part about about the, the, the promises that the master called sin gives you. It promises you freedom. Promises you freedom. But it's freedom in regards to righteousness. This is a way of saying when you are a slave to sin, you are not bound to having to live in righteousness. Isn't that a good news? That's what the world tells you. That's what the society around us tells us. That's what our own flesh tells us. Serving sin promises freedom in regards to righteousness. Doesn't that sound like a good deal? But Paul says, did that freedom produce good fruit? Paul is asking his audience to reflect on what kind of fruit living under the master of sin has produced. He says in verse 21, it's the fruit that they were not ashamed of, that they are now ashamed of. Look at verse 21. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? And Paul says at the end of verse 21, the end of those things is death. In contrast to producing fruit that we are now ashamed of, and fruit that leads to death, Paul tells us the opposite. What about the master called righteousness? What kind of fruit does it produce? Look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You cannot produce the fruits of righteousness without being slaves of God. And here's the point of this contrast. You produce the fruits of that which you are bound 
too. That's why the imagery of, of slavery or of, of, of slaves or servants, which is not a very enticing image for us, but that's a point of why Paul is using this imagery positively here. We produce the fruit of that to which we are bound to. And serving these masters leads to opposite destinations. Look at verse 23. For the wages of sin, of the master called sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying in this final contrast of, of the final destiny or, or reward, Paul says, if you want to, con- to continue to serve the master's sin, which promises you freedom in regards to righteousness, you must know what this master will pay you. It will pay you death. His reward to his servants, to those who serve him, is death. But notice this other master, God. What are his rewards? Notice what happens to the servants who bind themselves to, to God. What he gives is eternal life. And what's amazing about this gift, about this reward, is that it's a gift. He gives it freely. The very fact that this master gives us eternal life as a free gift tells us that God is a gracious master, not a cruel master. So give yourself in the service of God. No longer in the service of sin. In Christ Jesus, God has given us the free gift of eternal life. But some may still be puzzled. Verse 23 presents eternal life as a gift, as a free gift. And yet, we're called to serve God as his slaves. That doesn't sound very free, does it? Is the image not working well here? Well, God gives this free gift to all those who trust in Christ and repent of their sins. All those who turn away from their sin, all those who turn away from serving the master of sin and trust Christ fully, his death on the cross, his resurrection as a penalty for our sin, as a means by which God breaks the power of sin over us. All those who repent and trust in Christ receive this free gift. This gift is free because it leads to eternal life. And it's free because it is given to us not on the condition of being slaves of God. It is given to us entirely on the basis of trust in Jesus. But the result of receiving this gift is that we change our masters. In other words, remember what the grace of God does in our hearts. It changes our obedience. It produces a new obedience in us. And the result of that new obedience that we receive by faith 
is that now our lives are, are beginning to obey willingly someone else, a different master. This is not the picture of a constrained slave who serves against his will. This is a picture of a willing slave who desires to obey his new master. Grace changes everything because it changes our heart's obedience. And therefore, it changes us to a new master. We are freed from the tyranny of sin, of serving our old master called sin. Our hearts are given a new desire, a new ability, a new obedience. And out of that obedience, we now desire to willingly serve a new master, being a slave of God. So that's why the picture of, a new, of this gift of, of eternal life as a free gift is not in contradiction with the picture of being slaves of God. Because it's a free gift that actually produces a change in our hearts that results in us being slaves of God. Oh, friends, this picture of being slaves of sin or of righteousness is an adequate picture, even to our modern ears, that cringe at, this, as, at the notion of, of being a slave of someone. It's an adequate picture because it adequately represents what's going on spiritually in our lives. The totality of our lives serves one of two masters, either sin or God. There's no neutral position in between. If we claim we live under grace, yet our daily living is not characterized by obedience to God's word, not perfection, but a pattern of obedience to God's word, then our claim to live under grace is empty and meaningless or simply distorted. Grace changes everything. And it starts with grace changing our hearts, which then changes our masters. But the second image that Paul gives us, that grace changes everything, is not, a, it's not an image of, of slaves and masters, but an image of marriage. Grace changes who we belong to. In the second section, Paul is speaking to Jewish audience of the Church of Rome. Paul wants them to know that they are no longer under the dominion of the law, but under the dominion of grace. Again, a Jewish person to hear the words, I am no longer under the dominion of the law. That is radical. That sounds, that sounds crazy. That sounds the opposite of what God has said in his law. So Paul gives a principle, an illustration, and an application. The principle is in verse 1. The illustration is in verse 2 and 3. And the application is in verses 4, 5, and 6. How is it possible for the Mosaic law to no longer be binding over a person? Uh, particularly over the Jewish person. The principle that Paul brings up is the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. When a person dies, the law is no longer binding over that person. Now the illustration of, of this principle 
is the scenario of a married woman whose husband dies. When the husband dies, she's no longer bound to the law of marriage. And therefore, could remarry to another person and belong to another person. In other words, the law of marriage only has validity while the person lives. Uh, the purpose of this illustration is, is not to speak about issues related to divorce and remarriage, but to speak about the validity of belonging to another after the first spouse has died. The application of this imagery for the Christian is that the death that we have experienced in Jesus and through Jesus opens up the legitimacy of belonging to another and the assurance of belonging to another. No longer to the law, but to one who died for us and to the one who was raised for us. The point of this imagery is to convince believers not only that we are released from the law, but that we now belong to another, to the one who was raised from the dead. This marriage illustration tells Christians, you are now married to Christ. You now belong to him. I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. Because this new husband has been raised from the dead, this new marriage will last forever. There is no more till death do us part in the marriage of the church to Jesus. This belonging to another is eternally permanent. But what's the purpose for this change, for this imagery of belonging to Christ? Look at the purpose statement in verse 4. In order that we may bear fruit for God. And this is where the, the two images of the slave and the master uh, and the image of the, of, the, of the woman who now belongs to another, marriage and remarriage, this is where these images overlap. There are two images talking about the same reality. They end up in the same place. Fruitfulness for God. New fruit for God. I love how Tom Schreiner puts it beautifully. God's purpose in wedding believers to Christ is to produce fruit in them. God's purpose in wedding believers to Christ is to produce fruit in their lives. When this change of, a be of belonging to Christ takes place, of a change from being under the law to belonging to Christ, our service is no longer based on the old way of the written law, but in the new way of the Spirit. Look at verse 16. But now we are released from the law, 
having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Do you see how even this second illustration of, of marriage and remarriage ends up at the place of service? It's ultimately pointing to who we are serving so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Are we serving based on the old way of a written code or based on the new way of the Spirit? Friends, if we look at the history of of the Old Testament people of God, the Old Testament bears witness to how effective the old way of the written code was. Did the written law bring about the change God required? No, it did not. Did the written code of the law bring the freedom the Jews expected? No, it did not. It actually brought the exile. It actually brought the very opposite of what they expected it would bring. Did the written code of the law bring the fruit that God expected from his people? No, it did not. Oh, friends, the written code of the law, of God's law, demanded but was not able to deliver obedience. But through Jesus, the promise of the new covenant that God said would, he would institute, he would establish, the Spirit of God would come through the sacrifice of Christ, when the sacrifice of Christ was once made, the Spirit of God would come and bring about the fruit that God always demanded. So, as one Bible teacher put it beautifully, only those who have died with Christ to the law and possess the Holy Spirit have the ability to bear fruit for God. Those who are under the law cannot yield good fruit and will have the penalty of death pronounced over them. Friends, according to this passage, the fruit for God can only be experienced by those who belong to Jesus. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we cannot bear the fruit that the law of God requires. Only those who live under grace can now bear the fruit that God requires because grace changes who we belong to. Oh, friends, the fruit for God, the new obedience from the heart, these don't come simply by having the written information. They come when God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ who fully obeyed all that the law required and gave his life as a sacrifice 
gave his blood to be shed as a sacrifice for all those who have broken God's law. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead so that all those who put their trust and faith in Christ would actually be given as a free gift, the eternal gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the result of that is that we are now bound to him, belonging to him through grace. And this grace produces fruit in us. And the end result of it is eternal life. Friends, this is life under grace. Under grace, we are transferring obedience from one master to another. We transfer belonging from one spouse to another. And the result of it is that the obedience that God demanded, the fruit that he demanded throughout the Old Testament is finally now possible to all those who are bound to Jesus. Well, friends, this is why grace changes everything. There's a song that I've remembered this week that I used to listen to way back in the day. It's a song that has nothing to do with what we've been talking about here in terms of God's grace. But the lyrics of it sound interesting. Love changes everything. Changes how you live and how you die. It's a, it's a very idealistic picture. Because if you look at the way people live love these days, clearly love does not change everything. It does not change how you live, and it does not change how you die. But it's a, it's a human way to try to worship this idol called love, human love. But here in this passage, we have something that truly changes everything. Grace changes everything. It changes how you live, and it changes how you die. It changes who you serve, and it changes who you belong to. Grace truly changes everything. Changes your master, changes your belonging. Friends, I pray that you would consider that life under grace is not the distortion that often we fall into, thinking that we can just live our lives the way we want to, and God will just be kind and give us free passes. Yes, the grace of God receives us as we are. So that no sinner, no matter how much he or she has transgressed the law of God, when they hear about the grace of God, they can come to God through Jesus Christ, and be received by him. But this grace does not leave you the way you are. This grace does not just leave you to continue to live life the way you are. This grace of God changes everything. May God help us to live under his grace and to live the kind of obedience that grace fuels in us through the person of Jesus Christ and through the work of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your grace in Jesus Christ. 
a grace that receives us, sinners as we are, but a grace that also transforms us, changes us from within. Father, enable us by your Spirit to embrace and celebrate and rejoice in this grace that is powerful, a grace that is more powerful than the sin that we have brought to the table, a grace that breaks the dominion of sin over us, a grace that has canceled the debt of our sin. Father, we pray that your Spirit will cause our hearts to respond to this grace by giving our members, of our, the members of our body, everything in us, actions, words, thoughts, attitudes in the service of our new master, you, our gracious God. We pray all this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen.